Hi, welcome to Uskogans, the International Podcast. This is episode 12. And today we have with us Dr. Anissa Bilal, uh, who is a strategic advisor on international humanitarian law and a senior research uh, fellow at the Geneva Academy. She's also a senior lecturer in international law at Swanspo. I hope I've pronounced that name correctly because I've been struggling <laughs> to learn that. Uh, and her areas of expertise include public international law, IHL, international human rights law, uh, armed uh, non-state actors, uh, she has also authored the War Report of 2014 and is the author of several articles on IHL and IHRL, uh, including an award-winning article on international law and armed non-state actors in Afghanistan. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anissa Bilal, for joining us on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Amir. Thank you. Uh, perfect. Uh, so to, today we are going to discuss uh, non-state actors and in particular we are going to discuss two uh, articles that have been written by Dr. Bilal. Uh, one of them is uh, titled From Cockroaches to Rosebuds, Changing the International Community's Perception of Non-State Armed Groups. The other one is What are no Armed Non-State Actors? A Legal and Semantic Approach. I'll be sharing the links to both of these articles uh, with the podcast so you can go out and check them. And just to get the conversation going, uh, Dr. Bilal, if you can just give us an overview of how international law and IHL view non-state actors and what is their status, uh, legally speaking. Thank you, Omar, for this first uh, very pertinent question. Uh, what I would say depends on which timeline you, you place yourself on the IHL timeline. Um, I would say that right after the Second World War, uh, armed non-state actors were really a small issue. Uh, there was only one article actually addressing uh, the issue of armed non-state actors and also a bit indirectly, uh, which is common article three to the four Geneva Conventions, which were just saying yet yeah, the, the, the norms applicable in cases of non-international armed conflicts. And so it was thought at that time after the Second World War that at least a minimum of IHL rules, humanitarian rules should apply to, to um, situations of non-international armed conflict. What is not entirely clear, it is now, but at that time, it can be debated whether it was the case, is that they, we were really thinking about state obligation first, that in, in case of internal matters, like what, is, what can be happening in a situation of non-international armed conflict, states were bound at a minimum uh, not to torture a combatant from, from a non-state actor, um, to also respect certain minimum obligations such as fair trial in such situation. And then it evolved, <clears throat> and it evolved mainly uh, through the, uh, the, the, the wave of guerrilla warfares and national liberation movements, uh, and the question of armed groups or armed non-state actors uh, appeared much more clearly on the international scene. And so if we now move a bit the cursor down the timeline of IHL and we move into the 60s, where the first uh, um, decolonization movements appeared, and then uh, in the 70s, where you had a lot of uh, guerrilla movements also appearing, um, then IHL um, took a much stronger approach to, to the issue of armed non-state actors. And in fact, we have <clears throat> two treaties, um, the, the two additional protocols, and one would think that only protocol two would apply to, to armed non-state actors, but it's not the case um, because protocol one also applies to non-state actors, but a very, uh, a very uh, specific case of armed non-state actors, which are national liberation movements. Um, and so 
uh, which uh, under their push uh, and the push of some states, uh, decided that the uh, liberation movements and all the, decolon the decolonization wars were to be considered as uh, international, uh, international armed conflicts and not non-international armed conflicts. So here you have a much stronger role of armed groups uh, present in the IHL um, domain. And some armed groups and some national liberation movements did participate to the uh, at least as observer to the negotiation of the of the of the protocols and this is quite interesting and then if we move again the cursor a bit further and we reach let's say the 90s now we have um, we have the the wars the different wars in um, in ex Yugoslavia and you have different types of armed non-state actors, uh, some very close to, to, to the states, uh, some others, and you have a mix of international and non-international conflicts. And here you have the different tribunals, uh, in particular the uh, tribunals for ex-Yugoslavia, who have to say, well, you know, what is happening at the international level for international conflicts uh, should also be recognized to be inhumane and to be a violation of the laws of war in non-international armed conflict. And this is the famous Tadic case. And here in the Tadic case, you have the first elaboration of the fact that certain norms um, will apply at the customary law level to armed non-state actors. And this is very important because if one looks at common article three and the second protocol, you won't find many rules, for example, relating to the conduct of hostilities. Common article three is really about protection and additional protocol two, you have some rules, but it's not that clear. It's not as clear as in protocol one, which really uh, embodies the rules on conduct of the hostilities. And thanks to the Tadic case, um, and this gave birth, if you want, to then the study by the ICRC um, and uh, the different, um, yeah, push, if you want, to recognize that armed non-state actors at the customary law level have almost as much obligation than states. And they, this is a breakthrough. And now to finalize this, we move back to 2020. And we, you realize, and you said that I was the editor of the, the war report, and I was until uh, 2019. Unfortunately, the war report had to stop because a lack of money. Um, but the, the, we systematically, systematically observed, and this is not um, so, so much, uh, let's say, uh, an innovation, but it, it, it is clear now that the majority of armed conflicts are of a non-international nature, meaning that the majority of conflicts involved armed groups. Um, so here, now we find ourselves, if we started in 1945 with only one article and, you know, very few conflicts that were actually involving armed groups today, in 2020, we have a majority of conflicts involving armed groups and um, we have IHL issues, but not only IHL issues, we have human rights law issues, we have international criminal law issues that apply directly to armed non-state actors. And this creates a lot of problem also at the legal level and of course at the political level. Thank you, Dr. Blow. I just have one quick question. So you talk about the, the fact that armed state 
actors or, or, or non-international armed conflicts are, are at the forefront of conflicts all around the globe. So why do you think is the case that aren't non-state armed groups or armed actors are still or still do not have a definition in international law uh, or customary international law as well, given that it's, yeah. it would seem quite important? You mean armed groups? Armed, armed groups don't have definition. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, that, that's, a very, um, that's a very good question. Um, I came to realize, I mean, you know, I'm speaking from a legal point of view because I'm a lawyer. Um, but of course, and fortunately, lawyers are not the only one to study armed non-state actors, armed groups, and political scientists, uh, anthropologists, uh, <clears throat> perhaps also some sometimes sociologists also study uh, the recourse to the use of armed violence by private individuals. And um, I think that from a legal perspective, we still have a very binary vision, at, and, and especially at the international level. We have a very binary, binary vision of how, um, the, the, of how things work. Um, for example, either you are a state actor or you are a non-state actor, as if it was so easy. Um, either uh, it's an international armed conflict, either it's a non-international armed conflict, again, as if it was so easy. Um, and um, we also tend to put in the same basket armed non-state actors, as if all armed non-state actors were the same, you know, as, it, as if it was a unitary concept, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, let's say, uh, not legal entity, but an entity which uh, would be somehow uh, coherent um, to be analyzed as one block. But of course, the reality is not that simple. And um, I, I, you won't find in the legal literature um, a definition of what, um, not the scholarly literature, but at least treaties, you know, you won't find a clear definition of what is an armed non-state actor. Mm -hmm. So what you know is that, okay, uh, so you spoke about the article that I wrote about what is an armed non-state actor. So, okay, you, you know that it's armed, that is non-state and it's an actor. <laughs> so, so what does it mean? And that was the purpose of what I wrote. It was to deconstruct each element to see what it means. And, and there you find, in fact, that at the end of the day, um, depending on what angle you're analyzing uh, these entities, well, you'll find yourself with different realities. So you can have an armed non-state actor, uh, which is, in fact, a quasi-state, like Somaliland. Uh, you can have uh, an armed non-state actor, uh, which is very well structured and organized on the one hand, and you, ha you can have another one, which is a group of individuals that decide to gather to defend themselves, so the self-defense groups. And so here you are moving in different realities and international law grapple this as if it was one entity. Um, the, the, so I think that why it's not defined as of today, it's for probably two reasons. One, I think, because international law is still too, mu too much binary mm -hmm. and does not contain enough uh, tools to really grasp these actors uh, from uh, different angles. And the second reason might be political indeed, is that uh, there is uh, a pushback from, from states to actually want to give too much definition of an actor uh, which they, they refuse categorically to enter the club 
so that might be um, the, the second reason. Uh, Professor Bilal, if I could just circle back to the war report and you mentioning that uh, the majority of uh, conflicts today are non-international. So, so in fact, that's also recognized by the ICRC in their 2019 report on contemporary challenges. So you, you find the word proliferation troubling when, when they describe non-state actors. So why is that? Could you shed some light on that? Yes, it's not the it's not only the the ICRC in this report that use the word proliferation. Um, when I participate in different conferences at the UN, for example, that always was striking to me that um, diplomats and uh, different persons, even working at the UN, uh, use the word pro the word proliferation, and. I'm not. I'm unsure how in this translate at least in 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 the um, in the mind in other languages. I'm French speaking, so in French it's clear when one talks about proliferation, it has always a bad connotation. Uh, uh, you know, I, I entitled my my short article um, um, from cockroaches to rosebuds. And uh, because what proliferates uh, actually are in French, you know, um, the, the common sense of the word proliferation is really the proliferation of cockroaches. And actually, I, I did this small exercise, and perhaps I encourage you to do this uh, with your, your friends and colleagues. And I did this with my husband. I asked him for you, and he's a photographer, so he's not at all a lawyer. And I asked him, what for you the term proliferation what does it bring to you and he said immediately yes it's the proliferation of cockroaches so when you are in an international arena and uh, you speak with the states um, with diplomats with the governmental representative with the with the journalists uh, um, with students and you know they all complain of course they will complain about the proliferation of armed non-state actors. But for me, one should, perhaps it's not the good question for, okay, the, this is a fact and this needs to be proven. I'm, I'm even unsure that there is a proliferation, but it might be. Let's say it should be proven uh, that there are more individuals that decide to, um, to record, to, to use force to, um, to defend their cause, because this is what it is about. You know, an armed group is a bunch of individuals that decide to defend something or to, 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 um, to reach something, either it might be economic resources or political uh, gains or objective or so on and so forth. But I think that one question which needs to be asked, and it's not necessarily the job of the lawyer, but it could be, is uh, why? I mean, why in the first place? all these individuals decide to recourse to armed force to defend a cause. Um, and this, of course, there, there are literature at the scientific level. There is literature that wonder uh, why there is such a need of joining armed groups. And uh, um, so in Africa, in other countries, uh, of course, the, the need to join armed group can be uh, the need to survive um, the, the forced recruitment, of course. Um, there can be also the fact that uh, there is uh, an oppressive regime. And so persons need to recourse to armed to arm force to defend themselves. Um, one could also wonder, and 
few years ago, I attended a very, very interesting conference um, in the US about peaceful protest. Uh, why at some point um, people choose to, um, to change from peaceful protest to a non-peaceful protest? Um, what, which one is the more efficient? So that you will find a whole area of literature to prove that actually peaceful protest is more efficient than armed, uh, than armed force used by individuals. And that, when we think uh, of this today, we, we might think it is true because today what we realize is that indeed the non-international conflicts are of a prolonged nature. There are these conflicts that last for years and years and years. Um, so it can prove that in fact, uh, when there are private recourse to force, um, it's not very efficient, doesn't work necessarily, uh, but it does raise a lot of question. And indeed, um, uh, by just saying, oh yes, there is a proliferation of armed groups. Uh, this is a way too easy, uh, it's, a, it's a too easy way out because one should first wonder what are the causes and then and this is what I, I talked about in my article or my short let's say blog entry is that if you consider someone as a cockroach you don't want to speak to him you, you know you don't want to speak to this entity i mean cockroaches are are repulsive so how how can we even imagine that these things can play a positive action and this is way too uh, easy for states and diplomats to say, well, look, you know, there is a proliferation of these actors. Uh, these actors are bad. We need to eliminate them. And, uh, and this, you have this, uh, this uh, sliding, um, this sliding, let's say, use of a word, which from something which should be neutral, let's say, you, you reach a point where you actually uh, entirely um, negate, let's say, the, the, the possibility that these actors can, can play something positive. Uh, Professor Bilal, if I can just ask a follow-up question on that point. It's interesting that you mentioned that words do carry importance. Or you also mentioned in one of the articles that attaching the word armed with non-state actors is problematic uh, in order to differentiate or define them. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I, you know, in, in this article, what I try to do is actually to understand each word of the terms armed non-state actors. And so one way to differentiate between a state actor and a non-state actor is when this non-state actor is armed. So what always bothered me is that, okay, but um, is, for example, the... Um, the, the, the executive, um, the executive, let's say the, 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 the executive leadership of an armed group, uh, is it armed? What does it mean exactly? Uh, when we talk about Somaliland, uh, which is a non-state actor, can we say it's an armed non-state actor? And for me, that was not really clear. And also I was wondering what IHL was saying. Um, uh, so, and, and probably this also stems from the fact that armed non-state actors are collective entities. And it's difficult for me to, to consider that we have a collective entity which is armed in, in, in and of itself. It's like a state. 
state are also armed actors in that sense. You know, they have armed forces. So is a state an armed state actor? So yes, but not the whole of it. So then I focused on what is armed. And in, in IHL, and it is also um, distinguished there, what is armed is, of course, the armed forces of a state, so the military. And in a non-state actor, what is armed is also the armed part of this non-state actor. So the military of the non-state actor, uh, so the armed forces. And here you have a whole reflection of what are armed forces of a non-state actor. Uh, and the problem is that sometimes in the mind of policymakers, of states, of journalists, or even of students, you tend to conflate everything. And it can be dangerous. Um, I give you an example. Uh, you take the, the notion of, you, you take the Islamic State. So we all agree that the Islamic State is a problematic armed group, right? Uh, which is classified as a terrorist organization and so on and so forth. But can we say that the whole of the Islamic State is an armed non-state actor? Can we consider, for example, like for other armed groups, that some part of the Islamic State, uh, which is not necessarily involved in combat, um, is part of that, so it is part of that group formally, but um, it's part, it, should we consider that it's part of the armed non-state actor as a whole? And usually people will say yes. Um, but then here, the slide that we might have is that, okay, so in fact, everyone in the Islamic State is targetable. And uh, it's not the case in IHL, because as you know, in IHL, only those who directly participate in hostilities can be targeted. Um, although then you have the whole issue of what in a non-state actor can be targeted if it has the, the permanent, the combat function and if his action is actually linked uh, to, to combat and it, it, it brings some kind of an advantage to the group and so on and so forth. This is all what is written in the, in the, direct, in the, the direct participation hostility study. Um, but what I, what I mean is that, in fact, talking about an armed non-state actors as a whole, as if it made sense, can be dangerous because then you, you, you might end up wanting to target everyone which is part of this armed non-state actor as a whole, whereas you have different, uh, you have the civilian administration in a non-state armed group. Uh, you have, for example, um, in the, the, before in the Rojava administration, you have entire part of the, uh, of the, the armed group which was, um, which was a part of a civilian administration of the armed groups. And this, this, this happens in a lot of, of uh, of, of state, of, um, of situation, sorry. And finally, perhaps um, what I prefer when we talk about armed non-state actors is rather to, to refer to the use of force. And for me, uh, that was clearer, although it can be also debated, but uh, it, is clear it is clearer for me to rather point out of the objective of the group uh, meaning that in order to reach its objective, the group used armed violence uh, to, um, to perform the action. Um, uh, so 
the, the, it, it was more like of a deconstruction uh, really than to take a position. But for me, it's too easy to think, okay, armed non-state actor can be any kind of actors without really thinking this through and what it meant to be armed from, from a, an international law perspective. Dr. Palal, you, you touched upon proliferation and now you also mentioned the Islamic State. So, so on those lines, we, we've clearly seen a pattern where states have historically and even contemporarily tended to incline towards painting with a very broad stroke and, uh, and putting all non-state actors in, into the group of terrorists. So from going forward and, and from a legal application perspective, how do you see this developing then? That, that, that distinctions don't make that states continue to uh, deem all non-state actors as terrorists. And if I yeah. could just uh, quickly sure. add on to, on to this question. So, so we see that the additional protocol one only specifies terror as spreading terror in the civilian population. We see a number of terrorism conventions excluding, explicitly excluding the applicability in times of armed conflict. So then how does this intersect with terrorism as sort of a thing which is perpetrated during armed conflict? How do states perceive that and how does it work in terms of the Lex Specialis argument as well? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a difficult question, but it's a very good one because this is exactly what we see now today uh, with regard to the judgment of Islamic and foreign fighters back uh, in their um, national jurisdiction, like in France or Belgium and so on. Uh, well, first, um, the, the, the fact that many states today um, put all armed groups, let's say, in the same category uh, as a terrorist group, of course, they do this for political reasons. And it is not new, let's say, that states are very reluctant to develop any kind of recognition at the legal level uh, for those armed groups that try to overthrow them. I mean, this is uh, the reasons why there is only um, uh, a few articles in Protocol 2 and in international, uh, in, in your, for the law applicable in international conflict, you have more than hundreds uh, of articles. So states don't want to develop this. And one of the reasons, of course, is, is that they don't want to give any kind of recognition, privileges, and whatever to uh, those groups that want to overthrow them and they want to keep control. Um, the, the, the fact is that we are still a very state-centered system, and um, this is not new again. I, I think that um, this is not uh, satisfactory in the sense that it, it falls again into this very binary vision of black and white, state, non-state, um, and it, it doesn't help to tackle the issue. The problem is that today what we, what we are seeing is that um, in, in branding all armed groups as terrorist groups, uh, you cannot really engage with them. You cannot talk to them. Um, and not even state can talk to them, uh, but other international humanitarian organizations will have difficulties to engage with actors which are considered to be terrorist actors uh, by different states. The thing is that for the Islamic State and for Al-Qaeda, um, you have at least uh, a common denomination in many national uh, legislation and at the international level. But what you should know is that um, many states have terrorist lists and not of these, none of these terrorist 
terrorist list match. So for many states, they have their own list of terrorists and for another, they have their other list of terrorists. So um, this is just to say that the terrorist of one state is not necessarily the terrorist of another state. Um, the problem is when it does impact uh, the humanitarian engagement with these actors, it, it impacts a whole area of other things. Uh, for example, um, the, the possibility to enter negotiation, uh, peace agreements, uh, the possibility to, for example, uh, deliver aid in some situations uh, because it can be considered to be a support to terrorism. And so this is where it comes problematic. And it is problematic at the legal point of view, it is problematic from a political point of view, it is also problematic. Uh, but from an intellectual point of view, it's also problematic because you put everything in a black box. Um, and black boxes are never good. Black boxes are a way of not thinking. So you should always open the box and see what there is in it in order to understand and grasp the reality. With, with, with regard to your question, Chayne, it's it is problematic because on the one hand, you have all these terrorist conventions, uh, counter-terrorism conventions. On the other hand, you have IHL treaties, but you also have human rights law, which has developed today. And none of these actually really very well overlap uh, in the sense that um, they have been developed in their, whole, in their own areas and they do not necessarily always uh, address the same thing in the same manner. And, um, and now this becomes more and more um, tricky because when you find, for example, I was talking about the repatriation and the judgment of foreign fighters, terrorists who joined, um, who joined the Islamic State and came back to France, and they were not necessarily judged according to IHL, but they were rather judged about counterterrorism law, which is not necessarily the same. And then you had also um, issues of fair trial uh, happening, not in France, but of those, of those states who wanted to hand over the, 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 the hot potato, for example, to, to Iraq and said, okay, no, we cannot uh, leave our, um, uh, our fighters being judged by, for example, the Kurdish administration because they won't necessarily have a fair trial there. But let's, let's handle them to Iraq as if in Iraq they wouldn't have a better trial. Uh, but Iraq is a state, so it's okay. Whereas the Kurdish administration is an armed non-state actor, so it's more problematic. So see what I mean here is that uh, now the international community is facing a complex phenomenon with, um, with uh, answers which are not uh, refined enough and which are not um, sophisticated enough because they have a simple vision, a too simple vision of what are armed non-state actors and there is it is true on the one hand that you have a complexity of layers of laws, but that do not necessarily speak themselves. So uh, I, would, I, would, I would tend to, to encourage, um, of course, lawyers uh, and any kind of other scholars to continue thinking about these issues and try to come up with a, with a more um, coherent uh, approach to, to these actors. Do you feel that uh, this this uh, increasing co-positioning and juxtaposition of uh, concepts like uh, terrorism and international criminal activities with non-state actors has 
uh, to a large extent to do with the lack of cohesion on non-state actors under IHL. That, as you also mentioned in the article, that the elaboration of armed forces is in additional protocol one, uh, which deals with international armed conflicts. But as far as their application to NSAs is concerned, it's a bit blurry. So that general uh, lack of uh, codification on non-state uh, actors and non-international armed conflicts, does it also have a role to play in this regard as well? It's rather because there is, let's say, um, a discrepancy between a certain reality and, and the norms which are applicable to this reality. Uh, I tend to think that today the reality has is going faster than the development of some norms. Um, you, you mentioned this, uh, the, the idea of armed forces uh, that you know, exist in international conflict and not necessarily non-international conflict and different, different other uh, concepts like this. But this is not what I have in mind when I, when I talk about the fact that I think the reality is going faster than the norms. It's the fact that um, you know, I, I usually compare this, for example, with regard to the rights of women. Um, for, for many years uh, in Switzerland, for example, um, women did not have the right to vote until uh, the 70s. Um, and right. I mean, it was, it was really late. Uh, so the reality was very, um, very much in advance of the, the norm. And unfortunately, they changed the law. Um, but it took the time for the norms to adapt to the reality that it was facing. And I think that now at the international level, uh, we are facing the same thing. For example, the, with regard, so if we take IHL, okay, let's take IHL and human rights law. I'm not even talking about counterterrorism, but let's say to talk about IHL. So IHL undeniably applies to armed groups. So everyone agrees. How exactly, we don't know, but it does apply. Um, then, when we look at the content of the norms, we say, okay, so where in treaty law are we going to find these obligations? So, okay, we say, oh, yes, there is common article three, and then there, there is protocol two, okay? Leaving aside protocol one, which only applies to a very specific type of actor. So we have really protocol two. So we have only a handful of norms. So we say, ah, but no, wait, there is customary law. And we say, oh, okay, so let's go and see what is customary law saying. And here we look at, you know, the, the study done by the ICRC, and they tell us, oh, yes, more than 140 norms uh, applies both in international and in non-international conflict. So we say, oh, great. Then you go and you talk to the armed groups and you say, well, are you aware, in fact, that you're, you're bound by, you know, all these norms? And they tell us, oh, okay, so, but who made these norms? And you would say, oh, well, this is states, you know, their practice and their opinion juris actually create customary law. And then they will tell you, oh, yes, but, you know, states are quite different from us. I mean, they do not have the same structure. They are very elaborated. They have uh, an executive, they have armed forces, they have a, a very structured a division of, of power and everything. And we are just an armed group. And yes, we have a certain level of organization. But ca how can you expect us to, uh, to respect all the norms that are in customary law the same way that states are respecting? 
So here at the IHL level, you already have some kind of imbalance, right? Is that we expect from armed groups the same thing as states. Um, it's good in a way, but it's also a bit difficult for, for armed groups to, um, to then apply everything exactly uh, as they, they, it's expected from us lawyers to apply. So there is, here we are in the fact that the norms are not quite adapted to this reality of armed groups. This, now if we take human rights law, again, we have another discrepancy problem. The human rights law level, a lot of people will, a lot of scholars disagree that armed groups are bound by human rights law. Why? Only lawyers disagree. I mean, a lot of lawyers, because they will tell you, but you don't find one single treaty which actually says that armed groups are bound by human rights obligations. Only states are bound. It's in logic, in the philosophy uh, of human rights law, that only those um, state actors are bound by human rights obligations. Okay, you say, okay, fine. We don't find this in treaty. But look at the reality. You have persons who live under the jurisdiction of armed groups for years and years and years. How do you expect these individuals to, um, to have, for example, a recognition of their birth certificate. So if the, the, the document issued by an armed group is not a valid document, this person is just not born, born at all, you know, because this armed group, which controls actually administer a, a, a whole territory, doesn't have human rights obligations. So it doesn't have necessarily the obligation to, um, to, um, to recognize the legal personality of someone. It doesn't have the obligation to provide for uh, education, to provide for healthcare, to, uh, um, to, to perform any kind of acts that a state would do. And this again is a discrepancy with the system as it is and the reality. So you'll have, of course, you'll have other lawyers who, who will uh, want to argue, yes, yes, you can find in the text some kind of references. And if it's not in the text, you can find this in customary law and so on and so forth. What we observe today is that um, many UN agencies, um, they actually will, you know, will, will just say, okay, Okay, perhaps this is not really harder obligations, but let's say that armed non-state actors still have uh, human rights responsibility. So it's another word, you know, to say the same thing. It does create some problem at the legal and political point of view, but it's, it's a, a way of saying the norms that we have here, the system does not quite match what is happening on the ground. Even the ICRC, you mentioned the, 19, the 2019 challenges report, said that for those armed groups which has uh, the same level, let's say, of authority than, than a state's um, very high level of uh, de facto authority would be bound by human rights obligations. But that's a matter of interpretation. So it's not really hard again. It's really a way to adapt what is happening um, to, to, to the ground. And the same goes with international criminal law. Again, here, as with IHL, this is my own point of view. Huh? Maybe, maybe you disagree and maybe a lot of people disagree. But my point of view is that there is still this discrepancy between the reality and the norms in IHL, in human rights law, um, and in, in um, international criminal law. Because what are we saying today? So we are talking about armed groups. 
we say, oh yes, armed groups have IHL obligations. It's clear, armed groups are non-state actors as collective entity. But then suddenly in ICL, it's only individuals that can be tried at the criminal level. So you won't find a collective armed actor other than the state, uh, which actually cannot really neither be tried criminally, but at least it can incur some kind of state responsibility for the crimes that the state has committed. But an armed group, no. An armed group will not have collective criminal responsibility. So whereas it has IHL obligation and it's recognized as a collective entity under IHL, when you looked at the under criminal law, international criminal law, only individuals can be liable uh, can be criminally held responsible um, at the ICL point of view. So in those three areas, which are the areas which I know best, I'm not a specialist of counterterrorism law, so I won't be talking too much about this, but the three areas here, you have somehow norms that not, are not quite well adapted to the reality uh, which they seek to, to regulate. So fortunately, you have interpretation, you have, you know, practiced by different organizations that try still to address the, the issue. Um, but this, from an intellectual and a scholarly point of view, uh, it's our role, let's say, to, to push into the, more, the right direction to say, you need to, to think that through and to see how we can adapt and have better legal, um, a, a better legal system that can address this reality. Dr. Bilal, I'm really glad that you bring it up, and I think you very comprehensively sort of outline it for us and the viewers as well. So, so where does this then practically leave us as far as the positive compliance with not just IHL, but international human rights law as well is concerned when, when we talk about non-state actors? That's one. And, and two, how does this then play into the participation that non-state actors have in, say, transitional justice processes or post-conflict peace processes? Maybe as a concluding remark as well. Yes, um, that, these are very, again, very interesting questions. Um, with regard to, um, to human rights law, and um, I think that for a long time now, human rights organi organizations which are in the field and that work with our non-state actors, uh, they do talk about human rights law with these actors. Uh, the, these actors also talk about human rights themselves. I mean, I've talked to many armed groups. Um, and, and, and these armed groups, when you, when you ask them, I mean, you, to, to some, at least some of these armed groups, when you ask them, okay, where, where does, why do you fight for? And they would say, We've, we fight for human rights. Uh, they don't say we fight for IHL or we fight for, you know, to, of course they know about IHL, but they, they really, the, the roots of their, usually the roots of their behavior will also, um, um, will also be motivated by a human rights cause. And so you are, you are, when you talk to an armed group, you are not going to tell them, oh yeah, but you know, you're not actually bound by human rights law, but it's good that you talk about this, but you're not bound by them, you know, legally speaking. So of course not, you're not going to tell them this, you're going to say, oh, that's great. Uh, how do you engage yourself? Uh, where do you proclaim that you respect human rights? And then you look at their text, <clears throat> and of course they might not respect what they say, but at least they have a commitment and they, they kind of own, you know, the whole system. They kind of say, okay, so yes, we believe in human rights, we believe in IHL, we believe uh, in the fact that uh, crimes against humanity or war crimes should not be committed. And, you know, uh, we try, our, we try to, to put this into our text. 
And um, this is a way to engage with them. This is a way to talk to them. Um, for example, you know, at the time with the Taliban, and you, you mentioned this article that, uh, that, um, that we wrote with two of my colleagues uh, on Afghanistan and the applicable law uh, there. And it was very interesting because at the time, you know, the Taliban were like the ISIS of today. Yeah. And, but the, the Taliban did, you know, issue code of, codes of conduct. Um, one code of conduct which was issued uh, several times and, and, and revised. And that was good because this code of conduct, even if, the, if it was not um, uh, at the level that we would have expected, it was al already a good way to start a conversation with these groups. And this is the same today. So it's a good way to actually engage the groups on human, right, human rights law and IHL on humanitarian norms. And then you talk about transitional justice, and I also find this quite interesting because it's a quite new area. And um, I, I, I also wrote an article on transitional justice and armed groups. And in fact, uh, I realized at the, when I wrote the article that very few uh, transitional justice experts did inter were interested in this issue. And uh, of armed groups, and I said, well, that's that's bizarre because, in fact, you know, many uh, many conflicts today are non-international conflicts. So you will find many uh, many armed groups uh, at the end of the day to be involved in transitional justice processes, and this is what we see in Colombia right now. Uh, and here, um, for me, it's. Again, I, f I find this interesting because uh, when um, the, sp the, the special reporter on transitional justice, he, he said also that, okay, we can have transitional justice, but the fact is that many conflicts today are also protracted and you might at some point have peace, but at some point suddenly you know, it's not exactly peace. So we talk about transitional justice, but not exactly after the conflict. So you might end up talking to an armed group but the conflict is still kind of going on. In Syria, there have been some kind of transitional justice approach already now, whereas the conflict is not over yet. So we need to find ways to, um, to, uh, to integrate armed groups into transitional justice um, theories uh, with regard to the right to truth, with regard to um, how we can also approach them, not necessarily only from a criminal legal point of view, but also from other perspectives, which are perhaps less threatening to, to individuals that have belonged to armed non-state actors. Um, what kind of reparation can be sought? I mean, all, all these transitional justice theories have to be a bit adapted also to the reality of, of uh, armed non-state actors, mm -hmm. how to integrate armed non-state actors into um, commissions of, uh, of uh, peace and reconciliation. All these issues today can be very practical because um, I don't believe that ICL can be the only way to, to, to solve the, the issue in, in, in troubled societies like this. And when you are facing a situation where when conflicts are prolonged and it's never clear whether you're in peace or not in peace and then everything can change very rapidly. So again, here we don't have necessarily a very satisfactory framework to approach this, but this needs to be done. I don't want to be too long, so this is no, why I'm... We really thinking. appreciate the extensive answers that you're giving. I think our viewers will also really, really appreciate it. And I think, I think Sharon had maybe a question as well. Yeah. 
So as a final question, which also emanates partly from my own personal curiosity. <laughs> so we saw in, in the additional protocol one, this elevated status of some of armed non-state actors, particularly those uh, relating to national liberation movement. So we saw a transition in 1949, the drafters thought of national liberation movements as non-international armed conflicts. Then some of the states, for example, rather some of the actors like the Palestinian Liberation Organization, so they tried to use Article 2, Paragraph 3 to sort of get that elevated status. They failed. Then came Article 1-4, and then we saw in Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, the wording was repeated again. But yeah. then we see national liberation movements as this very rare phenomena where we've just seen the Polisario Front. So what future do you see of this, perhaps this very unique elevated status for armed non-state actors, do you see this withering away? And after that, if you want to give any parting thoughts on our discussion as a whole, you're welcome to do so. Yes, yeah, thank you. Um, again, a uh, good question. I have, uh, I have put some thoughts in, in uh, Article 1, Paragraph 4, and the Polisario Front. Um, because it was quite interesting, this whole phenomenon and how they finally got the, the, their declaration uh, in relation to 96.3 accepted. Um, when you think about this and you also try to, to, to first of all, you, you try to elaborate on what is um, decolonization, um, let's say, movement or, or war. Uh, so here you have a very um, strict definition. Uh, what is um, what is um, a, a people under colonization? Uh, what is also in Article One Four, and this is something I, I think if you have you know uh, someone interested in doing a PhD, I, I would I would love to, to to read more. And perhaps something is written I don't know about. But what is the link about the occupation in Article One Four and occupation in Article Two? Um, because, for example, they talk about foreign occupation, but what does it mean exactly? So if um, in Protocol 1, um, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, exactly one of the situation in foreign occupation, uh, it's not a decolonization movement, but it's something specific. So why uh, would uh, Article 2 uh, terms of occupation be different? I mean, that was also one of the issues. And then uh, one very interesting point, and then apartheid, apartheid is easier, let's say, because then you have, you know, it's a clear, we, we know better what is apartheid because there's a whole definition of this and, um, and, and, and the crime is, it, it's better defined. Um, but then what is an authority representing a people? And this is where everything which is uh, drafted in Protocol 1 is actually very much linked to the decolonization movement. And the Polisario Front was falling quite squarely in all those things because their territory was listed as a non-autonomous territory by the United Charter, by the United Nations, sorry. So in that case, it was I mean, from a legal point of view, it was easier to say, okay, that the, 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 the Western Sahara is on the list of non-autonomous country, uh, not a uh, non-autonomous territory, uh, which hinged into some kind of either foreign occupation or decolonization. Uh, and then you have the Polisario Front, which is the authority representing the people 
and you had the let's say you had the, the sine qua non condition was that Morocco ratified Protocol 1 in 2011. And th all of this actually triggered the poss possibility for the Polisario Front to uh, make this declaration, which was then accepted. For Palestine, it was more complicated because Palestine did a declaration as well, but they said that this declaration, they made the declaration qua the Palestinian state. And so at that point, the, the, the federal department of, the Swiss Department of Foreign Affairs, or the, sorry, the Swiss government, which is the depository of the Geneva Convention, had to, take, to accept or, or not accept this declaration. It said, okay, but it's a state, but normally it's not a state which can make this declaration. So uh, this was problematic and the fact that Israel did not ratify Protocol 1. So we might think that in the future, you'll find other armed non-state actors, other movements that might fall into the condition of Article 1.4. It, it is, to my mind, a bit complicated, but it can happen that the, another population of a non-autonomous uh, autonomous territory decide to take arms and uh, make this declaration, thereby uh, conditioning the, the um, thereby triggering sorry the application if the, the declaration is accepted triggering uh, the application of all four Geneva conventions and the protocol to this armed group making then also some kind of a quasi um, let's say uh, you know uh, an actor which would have a POW status and all that kind of, uh, of thing it can happen it's unlikely but it can um, the conditions are probably um, a bit historic of a historic nature. The fact is that apart from the prisoner of war uh, issue, uh, which you can find in Protocol 1 um, for certain movements that, you know, carry their arms openly and so on and so forth, which is quite uh, controversial, but still it's in Protocol 1. Um, Many of the obligations are still, you know, binding under customary IHL for, for many armed groups. So apart from these, uh, anything which is linked to conduct of hostilities, which is in, in Protocol 1, is already binding on armed groups. So it's, it's just political whether or not um, an armed group can be recognized as, as, as this special armed group into this special category of national liberation movement as recognized in, in Protocol 1. Um, it can happen, although I, I, I don't think it will so much. And for the Polisario Front, they did not make declaration under the CCW. Uh, it would have been interesting. Um, and Morocco, of course, rejected totally uh, this, um, this declaration, and they were not at all in agreement. But the rest of the states did not react. So we, we, can, uh, we, can, uh, uh, we can say that, okay, this has, uh, this has worked. But it, from a legal point of view, it didn't make so much difference, but it did from a political point of view for the Polisario Front to stay there, to stay their, their vision. For Palestinian, it's a bit different now because Palestine is, is recognized as a state for, by many other states. Um, so the, the, um, the, the impact would, would not be uh, as groundbreaking now as it, were, it would have been 20 years ago. 
the, the final words is really um, that uh, I, um, well, first of all, I thank you to, 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 to ask me my, uh, my thoughts about this issue, which I really find fascinating. And, um, and um, I think that perhaps uh, one, one way forward is, uh, is to think about uh, a very uh, specific set of norms, which would be um, clearly applicable to armed non-state actors. Uh, and uh, to, in, in order to do that, I think we should, um, we should also engage with those actors much more, um, much more uh, actively. Uh, I'm conducting a, a research project uh, with, um, with the organization called Geneva Call on studying the practice and somehow interpretation that armed groups have on, on, on humanitarian norms. And this is just a way to better understand these actors. And of course, these actors are exactly like states. Um, they, they violate international law and sometimes they respect international law. Uh, so sometimes these actors commit terrorist acts, sometimes states commit terrorist acts as well. Mm -hmm. So there's, in, in that sense, it, there is no, it's a false distinction. And, um, and so for me, it's, it's important as scholars, as policymakers, uh, to approach uh, uh, this reality, not in a black and white manner, but in, in a much more nuanced manner, and, and be also careful of the words that we're using, uh, such as terrorist groups, or, or uh, as for that matter, uh, proliferation of uh, non-state actors at the international level, which I think is not really a useful way of, uh, of addressing the issue. So this would be my final words. We really appreciate your um, your input, Dr. Bilal, and the fact that you could take the time out to chat with us. I, I think I speak for myself and definitely for the viewers as well that the the extensive responses that you provided really do fill up this this way of thinking about international humanitarian law and non-state actors in general. So for, the, for that, thank you. Thank Perfect. you very much, Sarah, for the invitation. So that brings us to an end of the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bilal, for joining us. Uh, if we could, we'll probably prod you for another couple of hours, but we are already out of time. <laughs> so uh, thanks again. And I hope you enjoyed this discussion. We'll see you in the next episode. Cheers.